Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today, we welcome Russell Hedrick to the podcast. Russell is a first-generation farmer in the foothills of Hickory, North Carolina. He's known as one of the most progressive young farmers in the country for his work utilizing soil health practices on his cash crops. Russell's operation focuses on maximizing profits and direct consumer marketing for all of their products, including corn, soybeans, wheat, barley, pastured beef, and pork. He's also the co-founder of Regen Mills and Heritage Ground and co-owner of Soil Regen LLC and has partnered with Foothills Distillery, producing the first bourbon in North Carolina since Prohibition. Today, he and Monty explore all of these areas, and you'll hear the passion Russell has for making this happen. Let's listen in. Welcome to this episode of the Aggie Merge podcast. I'm excited to have Russ Hedrick with her, us today. He is uh, he is working as we are recording, so this is pretty awesome. He's hauling some of his corn to local mill, and uh, so it is true. Us farmers, we do more than one thing at once all the time, so it's great to have Russ here doing more than one thing at once. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me today. Well, we appreciate you carving some time out of your busy schedule to, to share your thoughts and ideas. You definitely have some, some big ones, and we're excited to hear where we, uh, where we go today. It's going to be a lot of fun. I, uh, first off, I like to start with on, on these things, Russ, is just tell us your story. Tell, tell us uh, you know, how you got started in farming and where you've come from and, and kind of the why. What, what's behind Russ and, and your farm and what all you do? Uh, well, man, if we're going to take it all the way back, I think, I think we'd have to take it back to when I was about five years old. And, um, my, my grandpa, Richard, uh, had probably 10, 15 cows. And I, I used to be his, uh, tractor step buddy. And, uh, you know, when he would make a little bit of hay, I would, I would ride around on a Ford tractor step and, uh, my eyes would swell shut. My nose would run and I absolutely hated making hay. Um, but I always enjoyed time with my grandpa and that kind of, that introduced me into ag. He started me out with a couple baby goats. And as I got older, started getting into, uh, I'd get calves for my birthday or Christmas or something like that. And I would raise out cows. And, um, when he passed away, kind of took a little bit of a step away from ag. And, um, I was a full-time fireman at the time and decided that, uh, if I wanted to be a farmer, it was. It was then or never, so kind of placed my bet, borrowed some money, and uh, we started with uh, 30 acres of uh, row crop in 2012, and um, we've, we've just kind of expanded into our different enterprises from, from 2012 till now. This will be our 10th our year farming coming up. That is incredible. And you're in, uh, you're in North Carolina, correct? Tell us about where you're located and what your, what your soils are like and topography and those kind of things. So we're, we're in the western part of North Carolina. We're in the base of the foothills. So our, our western county ground, um, typically, you know, mostly hilly, good for, for livestock. And then once you start moving to the northeast part of the county, it starts flattening out. We start getting into that, that bright red clay that is always 10 days away from a drought. Um, doesn't plant well, doesn't take water well. Um, it's essentially the, the soil that God made to hold North Carolina together. <laughs> there you go. Five o'clock dirt, you know, too wet at five in the morning and too dry five at night. That's, that's, that's pretty, pretty darn close to what, what, uh, this part of North Carolina is. Like I said, our, our state motto is we're 10 days away from the drought. Well, you know, David Montgomery's work, he talks about the, you know, coastal plains and all the erosion that happened there during colonization. That used to be really good soil at one time, but, uh, some plows took care of that, didn't they? Yeah, I'd, I'd say use of use of tillage uh, have definitely uh, shown their ugly heads, especially especially here in North Carolina. It's just so many generations have been tilling quite a bit. 
So now you, you kind of uh, skipped over it there a little bit. You said 2012, you took off. Um, give us a little overview of everything you've got going on today, all the different enterprises on your farm and, and why, why the madness, right, Russ? Why, <laughs> what's wrong with you? Why do you do all this stuff? <laughs> so, uh, so 2013, um, I, I, I met an NRCS employee called Lee Holcomb, and uh, it, it wasn't even really to meet him. I went to our local soil and water district because we had a winter erosion and, and winter weed issue, and I was, I was trying to go to soil and water to, to understand how to combat that. And uh, this, this crazy young guy about my same age was across the hall, and uh, Lee poked his head out kind of like a, a friendly neighborhood drug dealer, and he was like, hey, let me tell you about cover crops. Do you have a minute? Uh, and I mean, it really did. It, it's funny, but it really did happen that way. And so I just, I walked into Lee's office and, and uh, NRCS at that time had just came out with a new video called Undercover Farmers. Lee showed me a 30 minute YouTube video um, that Buzz Clute had put together. If, if people haven't seen it, it really does give a good overview. And it showed farmers from North Carolina all the way to North Dakota and, and the success that they were having with with the, the soil health principles and i guess being first generation and, and really knowing nothing about farming at the time uh it, it really there was no there was no negative to anything i heard the entire time and so it gave us the confidence between that and uh and the amount of hours that that lee spent with us um to really learn about covers and and, and learn about the benefits and, and, and more than just what we were combating at the time. And then I met this crazy guy named Ray Archuleta. And, you know, Ray's got me into all kinds of wild enterprises. And so now I, hold on just a minute. If Lee was a drug dealer, drug pusher, and cover crops was your gateway drug, what does this make Ray? Oh, Ray, Ray would have been like the mafia boss at the time. Then. Oh, yeah, he, he, he's the... He's the Don Vito there. Yeah, yeah, he he would have been the mafia boss, and uh, you know Ray Ray talked to us about livestock and 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 told me about you know grazing them like buffalo. And, it was and, a, it was a deal you couldn't refuse. Yeah, yeah, and the bad thing is is, is uh, you know uh, at that point in time cows were like two dollars a pound at the sale barn to buy somebody's headache. Um, I think it's the highest it's ever been in my farming career, and there Ray was talking me in the bottom. Don't you know that's but, what you're supposed to do? Buy high, sell low? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that is the American farm model sometimes. <laughs> but uh, but Ray Ray told me about this guy named Gabe Brown. And, uh, you know, we, we, you know, got his phone number and called him up. And I, I would say as far as the... Uh, as, as far as the stacked enterprises go, I would say Gabe probably gave me the most confidence um, to, to, really, to really take that chance um, on, on doing those stacked enterprises and, and also the need for it, the need for diversification on the farm. I mean, he just he explained it well enough to me that it wasn't an option. It was something that we had to do. Yep, that's it. And so... That kind of that kind of brings us in at that point in time. You know, it's about 2014. Um, we we got recognized for being the innovative young farmer of North Carolina by the Ag Commissioner, and uh, I, I had a friend that Zach went to college and got his MBA, and his dream was to open up a distillery. Um, him and Tim started the distillery. And, called me up one day and said hey you know we heard that your corn is a little bit different than anybody else's can you tell us about it and, and why it's different and you know would you want to partner up with foothills and 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 start something from from scratch and so we that's how we got into the moonshine business and, and then later on the, the bourbon business well fantastic so along the way now i i know i've heard you you got the uh, beef business, uh, pork business. Um, I get a kick out of how you talk about the pork. That if they start rooting a whole bunch, they go to freezer camp. So I use freezer camp all the time too. Uh, it's a great term. And then, uh, uh, and then the corn business, which went into moonshine and then went into bourbon. 
Uh, now, I don't think we've touched all the enterprises here yet, Russ. No, we've we've still got a few more. So we we started with livestock, um, then we went to pasture pork. Um, which you know, the funny story about the pasture pork is, I actually I actually raised those those first fourteen Berkshires were raised in in about an acre and a half a yard behind my house, right outside of town and. Some neighbors loved it, and some neighbors did not. Um, but you know, I will I will say, rotating those animals, they they never they never had they never had that confinement that confinement smell to them. It it really did it really did work out well for our area. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then so we started with the livestock, and then we went from from you know cows, pigs. We went to the moonshine and the bourbon, and um, you know, as we started expanding farm acres, uh, that was you know one of the issues was buying cover crop seed all the way in Nebraska, the Midwest, and having to freight it all the way here. Just you know, freight being so costly, we we started looking at you know, is there a need for us to to be able to clean clean and and blend and back cover crops. So we started Southern Seeds and Feed and um, got that started and we're actually cleaning and grading our our own seed, a lot of it here that, that comes from the farm and we blend that up for other farmers and ship it all the way through the Southeast now. Um, sometimes we might ship towards the, the Midwest, but not often. So, and that was just a natural outgrowth of what you were doing. And then, yeah, yeah. Now you've got, now you've got these different small grains and you've got this non GMO corn. Then you went into what in the world? Who grows open pollinated corn? What is wrong with you? You're not supposed to do that. So, I was at a soil and water district meeting I was speaking at. And uh, Ken Morris was there. Is this another drug and, pusher? Uh, yeah, Ken, Ken works for Soil and Water, and, uh, and, and he really knows how to, uh, between him and, and Will Mann, they are probably the, I call them, them the encyclopedia of all weird things farming. Um, okay. And so, you know, Ken starts talking to me about this uh, this bloody butcher corn that uh, one of his producers is growing, and he was like, "Hey, have you have you ever used this before?" And I was like, "I haven't even heard of it." And so he got me a fifty pound bag of it to try, and uh, we we planted our first bloody butcher, and then we started reading online about reeds yellow blue hopi. There's blue claridge, um, Jimmy Red. I've got some friends that started growing Jimmy Red. I mean, that's another another good open pollinated variety. But yeah, who who does that? Uh, why would you Why would you want to grow something that you could save your own seed and you know save eighty ninety dollars an acre on seed costs? Sounds insane. Why would farmers do that? I know you don't get to pay for all those nice uh, advertisements online and in magazines. Well, you know, I I do miss I do miss all the free ball caps. You know how farmers like their like their ball caps. I miss my seed dealer bringing me all the ball caps and a hoodie every now and then. But um, you know, when when a when a farmer can cut their seed bill thirty forty thousand uh, dollars, you can you can gladly make your own ball cap. So I, I suppose you're probably not just uh, delivering that to an ethanol plant then, are you? No, uh, the corn we're hauling today, we, we work with a local feed mill and um, we, we, had, uh, we had a few people here and there that would learn about us growing non-GMO grains and um, they would call and ask if we made feed out of it. And uh, We've got a little hammer mill that we would do it. And then, you know, over the years that, that business volume has increased and so we partnered with a local meal that um, they actually uh, were willing to make a, a non-GMO feed for us, and they, they grind it and pelletize it for some of our customers. And um, 
you know, it, it doesn't sound as nice right now because I think corn on the board finally hit $6 today, but um, you know, this, this right here will probably make close to $10 a bushel on our corn, $10, $11, somewhere in that neighborhood. And I mean, in years past when corn's been three fifty on the board, we've been making seven fifty, seven dollars. And you know, if you can get if you can get double the rate for that, and then you know, you start figuring in, you know, what it pays for a bottle of bourbon and how much corn actually goes into a bottle of bourbon. I mean it's corn corn farming is a lot more profitable when you're not just selling it to an elevator. That is true. You're, you're capturing all that value along the way. So we got the non-GMO corn. And to add on top of those stacked enterprises, what have we missed, Russ? Uh, we do a lot of small grain. We, we started working with uh, Riverbend and Carolina Malt House, uh, two of the bigger malt houses here on the East Coast. They're actually both, both of them based here in North Carolina. Now, wait a minute. You can't grow barley in North Carolina because it's too humid. You have to grow that in Montana and in uh, Canada. Didn't somebody tell you that? Well, they also say only bourbon can be, be made in Kentucky, but I think we've proven that wrong already. Oh, um, okay. See how that works? Yeah, you know, I... Does it, does it work in a, in a model system every single year? No. Um, but, you know, just for malt grade barley here, $9, $10 a bushel. And, you know, if, if, we, if we manage it correctly, and, I mean, we'll probably make two or three passes over the top with nitrogen. You can easily see 80 to 100 bushel barley here in North Carolina. That's, that's pretty profitable. Um, and we, we also do like hard, hard white wheat and soft white wheat. And they're, they're making a, like a new Belgium lager out of some of the wheat that we grow. And, um, you know, started working with the malt houses and then Sierra Nevada built a brewery here. And, uh, started doing some consulting with uh, Biltmore State and Sierra Nevada. And, um, they started looking at, you know, beer production for themselves. And it, it really... It really has surprised me that these these large vendors and these large brewing companies um, they they do have good corporate mottos. They they want regenerative farms. They want farmers to make money. But at the end of the day, they know so little about what actually goes into the the production of what I do as a farmer um, that it, it really has been refreshing to see them ask a lot of questions, you know, come out to the farm and, and make visits and and see, you know, how we're, you know, split applying nitrogen so that we're not overloading the ground for more than what it can hold and then leaching into the water table or, or streams. And, um, you know, it really, it really has been a big change, I would say, in the last three or four years about how companies are viewing uh, what we're doing as farmers and, and how envir environmentally sound it can be uh, looking at looking at some of these regenerative practices. That is fascinating. And I think they've been insulated from us by the middleman so much that they're, you know, when they buy just a commodity, they're just buying carbohydrates, proteins, and weight, you know, and uh, yep. it's great to see them getting connected and, and because then they can tell that story in their bottle of beer or in their, you know, um, whatever they're using in their end product. So that's, that's cool. And that's, Go ahead. that's kind of where, that's kind of where, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, meeting everybody at the conference we had there in Iowa. Um, it just seems like when COVID hit, everybody just got so, you know, insulated and shut off that um, this last summer, I finally got to hit the road again and, and hang out with, Rick Clark and Lauren Steinloggy and Lance Gunderson and uh, the Haney's and I was just having a conversation with Liz one day and I was like, listen, more more now than ever, farmers farmers need help. Um, inputs are going up and uh, input availability is going down and um, you know we've we've really got to focus. So um, Liz has started Soul Regen. Um, years ago, and, and uh, me and Sarah Varble partnered with Liz as co-owners. And um, since it's kind of it's kind of honest 
to just think about it's crazy that since August of this year, we, you know, we revamped school regen. Um, we started uh, regen meals, which is a mobile mealing operation for grits and cornmeal and flowers. And, you know, we started Heritage Ground, which is our brand. And, um, and, and even starting, you know, Farmers Reserve, you know, that distillery starting up this coming year. And just really what, what we're trying to do to get farmers information they need to be more profitable. Right. And just to back backfill a little bit there, that was a couple more of the enterprises that you're looking at is with the mobile milling, uh, regen mills, coming to farms that are raising, you know, regeneratively raised small grains or corn and, and those kind of things and, and creating a product that either A, the farmer themselves can direct market or through your um, your own brand, you know, have a trusted brand that people can can partner with, and uh, so that that's providing more opportunities for more farmers. So that's that's pretty exciting too. Uh, do you sleep much? <laughs> you know, it's it's surprising to me how many people ask me that, and uh, I always say it depends. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I would say on average maybe three to four hours a night if I'm lucky. Uh, most of the time, uh, I've gotten really good at taking power naps on airplanes or, um, you know, if it's planting season, harvest season, and, and we're also doing our consulting. We, we do a lot of consulting with other farmers and just the hours that we spend on the phone or on a computer making sure that, you know, their operations uh, running at you know optimal peak efficiency um yeah there there's definitely several times a year that you know three or four days with no sleep is uh is is not a not an uncommon thing yeah and for those of uh looking at russ here on youtube he's only 22 you know so i'm yeah. just joking <laughs> it's, maybe it's maybe it's wearing on him a little bit no <laughs> hey i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you a story that i haven't told many people Oh, here we go. <laughs> my my first big conference I got to ask come speak at. I was I was still a fireman, and uh, you know we had to shave every day before we went to the fire department uh, because of uh, OSHA requirements for our masks. And uh, I went and spoke at this conference. Absolutely nobody asked me questions. I think I was like twenty. I'm gonna say I was around maybe twenty eight at the time, maybe twenty nine. And, uh, you know, clean shaved face, looked, looked like I was probably 22, like you said. And uh, I was just so disheartened. And one old man told me, he was like, what do you think I'm going to learn from somebody that's as young as you that hasn't been farming that long? The funny thing is, they asked me to come back and speak again the next year. And I, I just, you know, resigned from the fire department, started farming full time. I had a beard. That same man was there and asked me all kinds of questions. And I was like, you don't remember me, do you? And he was like, who are you? And I was like, I had almost the same exact message last year with a shaved face. And you said, I look too young for you to take advice from. So I, I guess having that beard, uh, I guess having that beard added 10 years to me and maybe they listened a little better. So the beard took it up a notch. And then obviously your signature black hat took it up uh, two notches, didn't it? I, yeah, I don't think I was in the Black Hat Mafia at that time. That's that's something that Jimmy and and them started at a No Till on the Plains a couple of years later. But yeah, that's that's the Black Hat Mafia. That gets you at least a little bit of street credibility. <laughs> there you go. We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different. Be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now back to our show. So, you know, when people talk regenerative, there's a lot of, uh, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. You know, both on, uh, you know, product verification side and also on practices side and such. But just what's what does regenerative mean or regenerative farming mean to 
mean to Russ? Uh, you know, they asked that question about three years ago now, and it really did surprise me that absolutely nobody had the same, you know, answer. And, and I, I guess it does mean so many different things to so many different people. But, I mean, to me, regenerative farming – I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the next generation. My daughter just turned eight years old. Uh, she loves picking corn. She hates picking beans. Pigs are probably her favorite animal. And I mean, regenerative farming to me just means that I'm, I'm, I'm building a wealth of soil for her to be able to, to hopefully farm whenever she decides to, if she even wants to. Um, it's, it's really just making something better for the following generation. It's not the, it's not the take it now and, try to get the maximum amount of dollars out of it it's uh it's to make money and 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 try to try to make it better for the next generation that's hopefully you know going to feed feed the population like i am so why do you do all of these extras that you're doing i mean how many total crops do you grow i'm counting about nine i was going to say it's probably nine or ten crops um i like the challenge um i love picking corn we call soybeans peasant peas here. I, I absolutely hate picking soybeans, um, but you know it's it's. I've just I've always enjoyed watching something grow, and I've really always enjoyed watching something new grow that I've never done before. And um, you know, for for us, it's more about diversity. I mean, I'm not I'm not oblivious to the fact that you know we're going to have drought years, we're going to have flood years. Um, there's, there's going to be years that grain production's bad. There's going to be, you know, uh, just like this, uh, COVID outbreak, you know, there's disease in animals. Um, you know, look at how we've had to limit imports from certain other countries because of swine flu. Um, you know, I, I know there's going to be good and bad. There's just, it's always a cycle in ag and, and really us having such diversity really helps to minimize if we have a bad year in one enterprise, um, at least the other enterprises, you know, should be there to, to, to pick up the, the loss and, and, and keep our farm profitable every year. I mean, I don't, I don't know, I don't know a whole lot of farms out there that can say 10 out of 10 years, they, they made money. Um, and, and that's, that's the big key is, is what, what good is it to me as a farmer? I mean, farming's hard work. It's dusty. It's, it's cold, wet, dry. Um, if, if I'm going to put my heart and soul into growing something, I, I, I would at least want to see a return that my family is going to benefit from it. So that's a great perspective on the, and what's driving the diversity on there is a, really a strategy for, you know, risk aversion because you're you're dealing, you're you're not covered or many of your crops aren't covered by crop insurance would be my guess. So you have to build your own insurance into your crop plan. Is that a, is that a yeah. to say that? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of our crops that, that, uh, that we haven't been able to get crop insurance on. And, and there are ways, you know, three years of production history on certain commodities, we can then apply for crop insurance. And, you know, there's a lot of regenerative uh, consultants, speakers, whatever you want to call them that, you know, they, they don't like crop insurance and, and, and they're trying, you know, to, to get people to understand the farm with as little bit of government subsidy as we can. And I understand that, but, you know, sometimes farmers don't have that luxury if they're getting an operating loan and a, and a ag bank requires you to have crop insurance. You, you got to find a way to farm within the system at the same time that you're doing something different. And it definitely has had its challenges that you know what that is a real challenge there because the the current system set up to support the current system right so yeah i mean the banks are set up to support conventional agriculture you've got uh the, the entire farm program crop insurance all those kind of things and the entire the market is too and so not only are you fighting peer pressure, if that ever, which don't bother you at all, but I mean, the average farmer worries about what his neighbors think of him. You know, you've got that, what the family thinks of you. You've got the, uh, yeah, the bank and the whole system. Then you've got on the output side, how do you sell this, right? How, how do you sell these different things and where do you get the delivery points? Who's going to buy it? Um, you're not afraid to be up to a challenge. How do you encourage other farmers 
to have that same uh, intestinal fortitude uh, to overcome these things. You know, the, the, the sociology portion of it and the, it, it, it's a fight to do what you're doing. How, how do you encourage them to do that? So the big, the biggest, the biggest concern I have is, is just like first time I ever traveled outside of North Carolina. I went to Kansas for two weeks with Ray Archuleta, traveled around the whole state, talked about the benefits of livestock integration. And, you know, you, there's certain states that are built for animals and certain states where they ripped down the fence rows, you know, three generations ago. And they don't have the infrastructure for livestock. And, we had a farmer that heard us talk about the benefits of livestock and went and bought 300 cows. You know, that, that scares me to death. Um, I, I try to tell farmers to do it the same way that we did it. And, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a silver bullet. It's not a get, you know, rich quick scheme. It's, it's, it's start small and build your market. Um, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how good of a quality grain that you grow. If it's something that's different and you don't have an avenue to sell it, what good was it to grow it? Um, so I think so that, we, that's a really good point there. If I can, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'll go ahead. I think people, us farmers, we get so worried about thinking, well, how are we going to do a thousand acres of this? Right. You know, how are we going to sell a thousand acres of that? How are we going to, you know, get the equipment for this size? And what you're saying, hey, just stop. Don't go there. How are you going to do? a bag of seed or a couple bags of seed just to try it. And it, you know, and the wilder it is probably the smaller you try. Right. And then if it works, then move, move from there. I think, don't you think some guys get overwhelmed thinking about, um, at the big that they skip even trying the small. Well, I, I think that, I think that this quote unquote scale of economics is driven into farmers so hard by our, our current policy that a farmer thinks that they need a thousand acres of heirloom corn to justify doing it. And, you know, to, to give you an idea, say, say region meal and heritage ground. Um, one acre at a hundred bushels to the acre. If you grind it up into grits and corn meal and open pollinated corn, and even after paying for milling it and bagging it, if the farmer sells it direct, um, we don't take, we didn't want to be a middleman company. We're essentially only facilitating a, a means to produce the good. Um, so the farmer gets all the profit. That one acre of open pollinated corn uh, could make the farmer anywhere from 15 to $20,000 an acre net if they were to sell just one acre. And if you look at the average year in commodities, I mean, yeah, corn is $6 on the board right now, but nitrogen is $1.20 a pound. Phosphorus is $0.90 cents a pound. Uh, seed corn prices are up. Um, chemicals are, are up three, four 400% if you could even get some of them. Well, just say the average farmer made $100 an acre. I mean, in, compared to the Midwest, I, you know, I've heard numbers in the Midwest where some of these large, you know, 10, 20,000 operations are shooting for 20 to $25 an acre profit. Um, that's their profit margin. So let's just quadruple that and call it $100 an acre. Well, that one acre is now worth 200. That's, that's a massive amount of risk that you just took off the table because you're growing one acre instead of 200. Um, you know, is, is it going to be easy to sell an entire acre of grits and cornmeal? No, you're going to have to hustle at it. And, you know, direct market, Facebook, social media, e-commerce. Um, but those are all but, things we have today that we didn't have five or ten years ago for sure. Exactly. And, and, and I, I, I think it helps farmers have an avenue to limit risk while increasing profitability. And uh, we're talking about 100 bushels of corn. Um, you know, what, what other, what other time in our lives have farmers been able to make that kind of money on a hundred bushels of corn? But I and, think, and that's, go ahead. I was just going to say that's, that's all we're trying to facilitate is, is to get farmers to think outside the box that you can still, if, if you want to farm 10,000 acres, you can still farm that. 
and you can do a commodity and haul it to an elevator, but um, you, you can do both. I mean, the, the equipment that picks 10,000 acres worth of corn will still pick that same acre of our corn that we're trying to get farmers to look at doing, you know, this direct marketing with. So, I mean, it's, there's not even a, a large investment in, in equipment needed. We're, we're simply utilizing what farmers already have. The only thing that they've got to do is, is, is have a little bit of storage capacity. And in the grand scheme of things, when you're talking about a two to $3,000 investment, uh, that, that gets paid back pretty quickly. And I think you were dead on earlier there when you said, uh, we've been trained as farmers, the economics of scale and, you know, low margin, that's, that's what we're, we've been trained to do that. And I think it, I think it's a great point. Just need to, Hey, stop the madness and look at where are other opportunities on the farm to, to gain more, uh, on a per acre basis. Cause yeah, if you can net 15,000 an acre and yes, it does take the hustle, no doubt about that. But how many acres do you need to have a nice living? Well, I had a, I had a I had a farmer. I, I've I've not gotten to this point in my life for my farming career, but I had a farmer tell me at the conference after my my talk was done. He told me he wanted to learn more about the meal, and and we talked about you know we're we're also doing like whole wheat flours and extracted wheats, and um, we're also doing uh, gluten free with like white sorghum and and buckwheat, making flour out of it. And, and this old guy just did the numbers in his head. And, and he was like, well, man, if I, if I did five acres between wheat, buckwheat, and corn, I would have enough to bring my son back to the operations getting ready to graduate college. And I was like, really? He was like, oh, yeah. He's like, if I paid him $60,000 a year and his only job was to use technology, which my generation, you know, people in their – I'm going to say I'm, I'm not trying to knock on the older generations, but I would say most most farmers over the age of 50 are not technologically inclined for social media and, and you know, e-commerce accounts. But think about these younger generations. They're, they're glued to an iPhone 10, 12 hours a day. Um, and that's how you're going to reach your maximum number of people. That, that would be perfect in, in, in a job opportunity for some of these younger generations to come back to the farm. That is exactly right. And I think we've had industrial agriculture has caused a mass exodus from rural America, right? Because at one time, 80 acres used to support a family, and, and now it takes, you know, 700 to 1,000 in the Midwest to support a family. And that's just too bad that we've allowed that to happen, right? So... Um, but the good part is, is that we don't just have to sit here and complain about it. You know, we can do something about it. You're doing things about it. I'm doing things about it. Many of the listeners of this podcast are doing and trying different things, uh, creating higher value and keeping that value by getting directly closer to the customer. And, and, you know, what you're doing is really a great model for that. You know, I, one of the things... (laughs) I wonder is we always talk about conventional agriculture, you know, and defining conventional is almost as bad as defining regenerative. But uh, my question for you is what's, when is it going to happen in your opinion and what will it take? What are some of the key elements it'll take to have my vision of regenerative farming being the conventional farming before I die? Now, that depends on when I'm going to die. I don't know that yet, Russ, but uh, <laughs> what's it going to take to where regenerative is the conventional? I'll be honest with you. It's going to take a lot. No. It, is a, it is a mountain that, you know, it used to be that ag was 2% of the population. I think the last number I heard was like 1.4 now. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been to Washington, D.C. and uh, spoke at a congressional congressional deal with some Senate Ag Committee members. I actually had a senator say that, you know, we shouldn't worry so much about farmland disappearing for rural development because the grocery stores will always have food. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just have to bite your tongue and you can't say what you want. Um, I just wanted to say, well, where do you think they get the food? But I just, I left it alone because 
the people that brought me up there were just giving me this look because most of the time I'm very brutally honest. And I, I do believe that that would have been a political no-no for me to do that at that point. Um, but I, I, I think this, this, the problem is everybody wants to lead the horse and, and everybody wants to be the person that leads this movement. And it's not, it's not gonna be an individual deal. Um, this is gonna take the consumer, this is going to take the farmer, and this is going to take the political spectrum to have support from pol policy, but it's also going to take support from the people who support ag. Um, you know, I, 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 see, I see this taking four different groups of people coming together to honestly make this mainstream, and we're slowly seeing that. I mean, um, some of the biggest ag chemical companies in the world um, have been asking questions about what it is regenerative farmers do and how does it work and um, you know at the end of the day they are a company and they still have to have a profit margin just like the farmer needs a profit margin and um, we're, we're seeing policy change happen in Washington, D.C. Um, sometimes it's change that I agree with, and sometimes I think the change is, is, is a little too far, too far out in left field for me. And, and, that's, and that's the big issue is, is most of the time our government is reactive and not proactive. Um, and, you know, farmers have got to be willing to come out of their shell and share their stories and their successes and their failures. I mean, you, you, you don't get a lot of that on the conference stage like in Iowa, a lot of the failures, but we do talk about our failures. We try to let farmers know that it's not all sunshine and rainbows because then they think anything they do is, is going to be a success. And then if they have a failure, they blame it on the practice. And, and it's not the practice that ever fails. It's just the way that somebody implemented it. I mean, it's, it's, it's different on every farm. So I, I think, I think as, as people come together and, you know, your podcast show and uh, us going around the country and, and, and trying to work with farmers to have success, I think that, I think this is something that's going to have to grow organically and it's not going to be fast, but Sometimes I don't think it should be fast either. I think we should do this right the first time and, and make sure it's a success. And that, that's a real good point there at the end because, you know, you think about in the 80s, uh, we went through the no-till revolution. People slapped a colder on the front of a planter, called it no-till, and they happened to have some weather streaks that made it work. And then we had some weather that didn't allow it to work, and it became known in uh, many areas of the Corn Belt, no-till meant no yield. You know, no till, no yield. That was the that was the mantra. And you know, when you change one thing, you change everything. And there was no addressing nutrients. There was no addressing, you know, uh, weed control or those kind of things, or even the rudimentary planter designs we had back then. So we we lost a generation of people. You know what you're talking about. If if they have a bad experience, you'll lose a generation, and you're not going to get a chance to to get that farm back on the. Uh, a new way of doing things until, uh, you know, the son or, or daughter replaces the, uh, the person who is farming it. So, um, well, it has and, to be done and, right. and, and for me, it's the technology. Um, I mean, you, you look at people like, all right, David Brandt, uh, well, well-known no-tiller now, uh, regenerative farmer, David Brandt. And then there's, there was an older gentleman that I had the pleasure of, of getting to know him and his wife Ray and Sarah Styers that were here in North Carolina and um, even you know Gabe Brown 20, 20 years ago we didn't have iPhones we didn't have the satellite technology I mean there's so much technology that has changed in in just a generation or two um, depending on how long the, you know the farmer farmed the farm ground that they were on but to see the technology change and to know that my generation can do better with the technology that we have now 
there's no excuse. There's we we have the Haney test now that we can read 23 more forms of nitrogen. The only reason that it's not happening is it goes against you know a professor's tenure at a at a state land grant college, and it goes against everything that they did for 30 years. But how how many businesses how many businesses don't change their their uh, you know mission statement or their objective or or their simple you know business goals and and how many how many businesses don't change those things in 30 40 50 years like we've done with some of these things in agriculture i don't know any of them that are still in business and and we are so adverse to change in farming that it just it absolutely baffles me it's amazing, and that's what we're here to do. We're here to change the ag paradigm, and uh, it really starts with how you think. And um, we we try to give opportunities to see people who are doing stuff differently, and and you certainly, sir, are are doing that. And you're a great model for for people to to follow and and watch that you can do farming differently. So it's it's pretty amazing. Um, Want to make sure that. Uh, before we leave today, we're in the show notes, we're going to have all the ways that you can connect with Russ, with Heritage Grain, re, you know, uh, region mills and soil region, what you're doing there, uh, your bourbon. I tried to order your bourbon, by the way, online, and it was sold out. What's the deal? You need to get to making more bourbon, sir. I, I tell you what, our, uh, our 1712 bourbon, um, it, it's at com and, uh, I'll be honest, it, it is good enough bourbon that it absolutely flies off the shelf. Um, so you gotta, you gotta keep rechecking. They, they only take a couple cases at a time. And here lately, for some reason, I think, uh, I don't know if everybody's tired of being home and they're ready to get back on the road again or what it is, but uh, yeah, sales, sales have been through the roof. And um, our, our new bourbon that we, did you get to try the new bourbon at the conference? Yeah, you poured me a glass. It was wonderful. Okay. So that, that Bourbon of Legends, um, that Bourbon of Legends hopefully will be out sometime this coming year. Um, we, we haven't got it into full production yet, but it's, it's one that we're working on. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have it out as soon as possible because it, it seems like everybody really enjoys it. So in our time that we had here together today, anything else I should have brought up or asked or, or mentioned while we were together? No, I think uh, I think we covered it all. I I hope people uh, I hope people take something away from it that change change is possible. And you know there there are other ways of farming and making money than you know simply growing grain commodities. It, it doesn't it doesn't take a it doesn't take a massive investment, and uh, it's. It's definitely worth people's time and, and, and energy to look at these regenerative practices and, and, and do better. And creating opportunities for family, friends, neighbors to stay in your community or come back to the farm. I mean, that's, that's the wonderful spillover effect out of all of this. The soil improves, your life improves, your financial stability improves, your community improves. It just takes extra effort, right? And it takes the ability to think differently. When you say those are probably the the two two main ingredients, I would say the biggest the biggest paradigm break is just getting out of your own getting out of your own way. Um, you know that that understanding of how Grandpa farmed and Dad farmed. I'm not saying some of it still doesn't work, but I'm saying that we we can definitely do better. Um, I think I think when I talk to you know multi generational farms, um, you, you know be proud of what you're. Be, be proud of what your family heritage is and be proud of, of what your family accomplished with, with the little that they had compared to what we had now. Um, but I, I, if, if I had generations that had farmed before me, I would want to do the best I could and do better than them to make them proud. You know, you mentioned the impact Grandpa had on you, making you do hay when you got hay fever and, and riding the tractor with him, and how much you appreciated that. And then you also referred to the fact that it is, it's okay to do different than what Grandpa did. You know, and really, you're a first-generation farmer, like you said, that you got started here. Now, speak to your granddaughter or your grandson that's coming after you. What do you hope they're doing? 
your hope that you, they're not farming like you, right? You would give, you would encourage them, give them license to, to not keep doing what I'm doing. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I hope if, if, uh, if my daughter, if my grandchildren, if anybody, you know, decides to, to, to be in production agriculture and, and, and grow food to, to feed this country, I hope that they're doing stuff that I never even could have dreamed of. And, uh, if they're doing the same thing I did, then I failed. Um, my my goal is going to be to instill into, into my daughter and, and um, anybody that, that comes in our operation is is uh, think outside the box and um, do things that uh, that my generation just didn't have the technology to do. Uh, that's that's all I can ask. That is awesome. Well, in the meantime, you keep feeding uh, your community and uh, keep. Uh keep everyone cheerful it's uh, got a glass of bourbon in their hand well uh well if you see me if you see me coming to a conference near you be sure to come by I'll always carry samples and i'm glad to give them out to see that's I like why to you're see so popular <laughs> well i like to see people smile and, and have a good time it's it's if the one thing in this world that i'm known for outside of farming is that i i, I always told jokes made people laugh and they had a good time when they were around me I, i'd say life was a success Great way to put that. Thanks for your time today, Russ. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on, and, and y'all have a good afternoon. I hope you've gained some insight into a grower who's proving that with the right know-how and some knowledge bumps, you can adopt soil health practices that work in your operation. And again, he's a great example of the kind of folks who aren't holding their cards close to their vest. He's passionate about helping every grower achieve great functioning soils. It's so fun to talk to folks like Russell who are making it happen and sharing their knowledge. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there, you can click on the links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.